Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Looking at Acts chapter 21 today, not the whole chapter, just the first part of it. It's going to take us a few minutes before we get there, but go ahead and get your finger there or your marker there. So we'll be ready to look at that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your presence here in this place. I just thank you for your manifest glory, your manifest presence that we've already been experiencing here for the last half hour, 45 minutes, Lord. Some have been here even earlier just soaking in your presence and and the worship, Lord. And I just thank you that you have made a way for us to come before your throne, before the throne of grace, that it's not hard, it's not difficult, that you have purchased us by your blood, that you have saved us, and you've invited us to come boldly before you receive mercy and to receive the help that we need in our time of need. Lord, I just pray this morning that you would freely bestow that help upon each one of us, that you would freely bestow your mercy on our lives, Lord Jesus. Lord, I just have such a strong sense of your presence here and that you are ministering to the lives of each one of us, Lord, and speaking to our hearts. And I pray that as we open your word, that we would not just be studying the Bible, but we would be hearing what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Each one of us have our own life situations. Each one of us have the things that we're going through, and when we're going through them, they feel like that, you know, nobody else uh, can understand or nobody else can really feel what what we're feeling right now. But Lord, we know that in your in your word that you, you say no temptation has come upon us, but such as is common to man. That Satan doesn't have any new and innovative ways to do things. He's always doing things in the same boring way, attacking us in our lives. And you've provided all the answers long, long ago. And I just pray that as we come to your word, you open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see what perhaps we've not seen or heard before, or perhaps we've forgotten in our lives, Lord, and refresh that and renew that in our hearts and stir up our faith and give us the strength to, as we go forward, Lord, to walk in the joy of our salvation. I just pray that you would lift the cloud of depression off of people's lives, that you would just renew restore the joy of our salvation, Lord, and I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21. We're just continuing going through the book of Acts. I didn't know we'd spend that much time in it when we started this, but it's good. I like it. <laughs> and I know the Holy Spirit likes it. And uh, so as we're coming into Acts chapter 21, I already explained this in our last lesson, that the last chapters of the book of Acts are all dealing with Paul getting to Rome, and with his various trials, with his arrest, uh, with the things that he goes through, and there's so much in this that I don't want to hurry through it too fast. Uh, there's so much here about learning 
to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I think that perhaps that's the most important lesson that we need to learn today. That uh, in the world that we live in, that we cannot be uh, led by circumstances. We cannot be led by uh, things that are attacking us and making us afraid. We can't allow our fear to lead us. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit and we have to be led by faith. So we have a, a really good story here that we're going to be looking at today of how the Apostle Paul is following the voice of the Holy Spirit even though everyone around him and all the circumstances around him are telling him that he's wrong, that he doesn't understand things right. He has the courage to uh, dedicate himself, to bind himself to obedience, to bind himself to obedience to God. And as he says, to be bound by the Holy Spirit. We've already read this scripture, but I'm going to read it again. It's in Acts chapter 20, in verse 22. Uh, Paul says to the elders from Ephesus, he says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So Paul knows that the Holy Spirit has been testifying to him in every city where he's been, that when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be arrested, he will be bound, and he will be afflicted, he will be persecuted. And yet he's going there anyway, because he says, I've been bound by the Holy Spirit, so the bonds of men mean nothing to me. I'm not afraid to die for Jesus. I will go forward because I know this is what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do. Um, if we go back a little bit further, I want you to look at chapter 18 for a minute. At chapter 18. I want to talk uh, at the beginning here about Paul's vow that he made. The promise that he made to God. Vow, B-O-W. The promise that he made to God. And this is during his second missionary journey. Now, if you'll remember, we just finished looking at his third missionary journey. So quite some time has passed since he made this vow. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, there's a little verse that we kind of you know, just glossed over when we were looking at this chapter, but I'm going to return to it right now. Acts 18, 18. It says, Paul, having remained many days longer, so he's just left Corinth, and in Corinth... He was there for a year and a half at least, because it says a year and a half plus many days. So he was probably there for about two years, teaching, having a very successful ministry there. And when he leaves Corinth, it says in verse 18, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren in Corinth, and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila in Kincria, that's how you pronounce it, actually. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. I want to talk to you this morning at the beginning about Paul's haircut, something that we wouldn't usually pay a whole lot of attention to. Sometimes there are details in the Bible that uh, we just think, well, you know, that's probably just in there just to make the story more interesting. But there's really nothing in the Bible that's like that. You know, if it's there, it's there for a reason. And it tells us that Paul had a haircut when he was in Kinkria. Now, first of all, if you don't have one of those little maps in the back of your Bible, I'll tell you, but if you do, you can look at it. 
I want you to know that Corinth is in the part of Greece that at that time is called Achaia and still is in, in Achaia, and it's on this little land bridge going down toward, uh, down to the south. It's much further south than Macedonia, uh, uh, where Paul starts out as he goes into Greece, into modern-day Greece. And from Corinth to the sea is not very far to go. And he's going to get on a boat, and he's going to go to Syria. And Syria is where Antioch is, the home church that sends him out, right? And then from there, he's going to go to Jerusalem. So he walks, or rides something, but most likely walks from Corinth to Cancria. Cancria is the port city for Corinth. Cancria is where he's going to get on the boat. And it tells us this little detail that while he's in Cancria, he gets a haircut. And he gets a haircut because he is uh, keeping a vow that he's made to God. I want to talk to you about that vow. That vow is explained to us in uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 6. And we're going to be talking more about this in sermons to follow, I think, in the next sermon as we go further in chapter 21, because there's going to be a whole story about this vow. And it's called the vow of a Nazarite. <laughs> Samson was born from his mother's womb. He was dedicated as a Nazarite to the Lord. And so he was never to have his hair cut. He was a Nazarite for his entire life. But usually when a person took the vow of a Nazarite, he took it for a specific reason. I say a person because it was something that either a man or a woman could take. And it's in Numbers chapter 6. And at the end of this vow, he was supposed to have, he or she, it applied to women also, is to have their head shaved completely, okay? And all the hair on their head had to be burned to the Lord as an offering. And it had to happen in Jerusalem, okay? It had to happen in Numbers chapter 6. The temple wasn't built and Jerusalem wasn't the place yet, but it had to happen at the tabernacle. It had to happen at the time of Paul in Jerusalem uh, in the temple. So the haircut uh, in the context where it says, for he was keeping a vow, tells us that it is the vow of a Nazarite. Now this vow is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 18, 18, where we see it now. It's in 21, 24 that we'll get to in the next message, Lord willing. And it's in chapter 24, verse 18, where Paul repeats it. And he's talking about one single vow. He didn't take it three times, he took it one time. But it's three times repeated in the book of Acts. And that shows us that it's very important to the story of the, book of, of the book of Acts. It's not something we should just gloss over and not something we should just pass by. It's important for various reasons. One reason why it's important is because we see, and this is going to be important as we go on in Acts chapter 21, we see that Paul very strictly obeyed and followed the customs and the traditions of, of Judaism and the law of Moses. Even though it seems like when you're reading the book of Acts that Paul probably wasn't very good at keeping the law. That's absolutely not true. You know, they said that about Jesus, that Jesus breaks the law all the time. But it's not true. Jesus fulfilled the law. He broke the traditions of men that they said were the law of God, but they were not the law of God. But Jesus lived very strictly according to the law of Moses. He lived as a Jew is to live. And Paul lived in that way also. But this is really important. He never imposed that on the Gentiles for salvation. But he lived that life for himself because he is a Jew. Paul is a Jew and he's a Roman citizen. 
And when he needs to be a Roman citizen, we'll see, we've already seen it, we'll see it again, he plays the Roman citizen card. Everything for the sake of the gospel. But as his, in his life, he lives his life as a Jew. So he keeps this vow of a Nazarite, and he keeps it very uh, strictly. But he does not impose that on the Gentiles. Now when I talk about the law not being imposed on the Gentiles, I'm not talking about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's moral law, and they apply to all people everywhere at all times, and they still apply to us this day. The traditions surrounding the Ten Commandments, uh, oftentimes were made by men, uh, have nothing to do with salvation. But, and, and you can't be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Number one, because nobody in here has ever been able to keep the Ten Commandments. Every single human being on this earth has broken them, at least in some point or another. And the Bible says if you've broken the law in one thing, then you've broken it in everything. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But we know that the Ten Commandments apply to us today. But we also know that the dietary uh, uh, restrictions of the law of Moses, they don't apply to Gentiles everywhere at all times. They have nothing to do with salvation. They may be excellent dietary rules. You know, I'm not really sure eating pork every day is good for you, but uh, they, they have nothing to do with our salvation. But Paul kept these things. Paul didn't go around eating pork all the time. You know, Paul kept these customs the law. But I think there's something more important uh, for us today that we need to see in why three times this is repeated that he kept this vow. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. So he's in King Korea. It's not very far from Corinth. It's like a suburb of Corinth. It's where the port is. And he gets a haircut while he's there. And it mentions to us that Priscilla and Aquila are with him. We've talked a lot about them. And Priscilla and Aquila are going to go with him to Ephesus. This is on his second missionary journey. We just left his third, where he doesn't actually go to Ephesus. He calls them to himself. But they're going to go with him to Ephesus, and he's going to leave them in Ephesus, and then he's going to go back to uh, Antioch of Syria. And then he starts his third missionary journey that we just looked at, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to go to Jerusalem. This is still on the second missionary journey, okay? But here's something that we see. He takes the vow on his second missionary journey. He takes the vow while he's in Corinth. Now when a person, a man or a woman, would take or would take today the vow of a Nazarite, then that vow would be, in almost every case, except like Samson or something, it would be a temporary vow for a specific purpose. And Paul's specific purpose, why he has taken this vow, we'll see this later, is he has dedicated himself to go to Jerusalem even though everybody in the world is telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. So when he says, I'm bound by the Spirit, this vow is what has bound him to obedience to the will of God. We, as Christians in the modern day, have lost the art of taking a vow. I want to tell you that. And it's not an Old Testament thing. We see clearly here, it's a New Testament thing. Now, I'm not Jewish. I don't see any reason... For me to take a vow specifically of a Nazarite and get a haircut and take it, mail it off to Jerusalem and have it burned or something, okay? But, you know, this ring on my finger is a vow that I made before God to my wife. And it's, it reminds me, the ring on my finger reminds me of that vow. The vow that I, you know, my uh, baptism is the, the greatest and deepest vow of my life. 
And it's something I can look back on. I remember being baptized. I remember that day. You know, it's something I can look back on in my life, and I know that I've dedicated my life to God. It's a very holy thing. Every time we receive communion, it's a vow that we we're making before the Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. And for me, personally, I've never been one any time in my life to just jump from church to church because my church membership in whatever form that comes in, because different churches I've been in have had that in different forms, you know, whether you find a card or whatever it is. But if I know that the Lord led me to a church, I'm not going to just leave that church because I get offended with something or because I don't like something. I'm not that stupid. I know I'll just get offended by the next thing also somewhere else anyway. Because most of the offense probably has something to do with me and not just the other person, right? And there are many vows that we take in life, and they're very important to God. In fact, they're so important to God that if we study Scripture, you will see that God holds you accountable for that. And it would be better for you not to even take the vow than to take it and to break it, okay? Because it's a very important thing to God. So Paul, he actually makes a vow before God that he will not allow a razor to touch his hair. I don't know how much hair Paul had at that age. Maybe he wasn't, you know, didn't have dreadlocks like I imagine Samson did. Uh, I, I seriously imagine that he probably had his hair in dreadlocks type, type braids or something because he would have had really, really long hair. By Paul's age, perhaps he had hair more like I did and you wouldn't even have noticed necessarily that he had taken this vows. It wasn't growing that fast, but his beard definitely would have been his growing. You know, he would have this big, massive beard thing going. and uh, But that was his vow before the Lord. And there were other parts of that vow, you know, that he couldn't go to a funeral because he couldn't get next to a dead body. There were certain, he couldn't drink wine during that period or eat grapes or have certain things that are there in Numbers chapter 6. But the main thing that people would see would be the hair thing. His hair was getting a little wild. His beard was growing because he made this vow before the Lord. And he would be reminded of that on a daily basis, that I'm going to Jerusalem. No matter what anybody says, no matter what happens, I am going to Jerusalem because I have bound myself by the Spirit. I've bound myself to obedience to God. So he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. They go to Ephesus. He leaves them there. He goes on. He goes on the entire third missionary journey. But the vow stays with him during this entire third missionary journey. Now here's something that, that, that's interesting about the Nazarite vow. So it says he had his hair cut there, okay? It does not say he had his hair shaved. And this is something that you wouldn't notice uh, uh, by just reading it on the surface, but it's, it's really important. The word for cut, the word for cut that's in verse 18, where it said he had his hair cut, is a Greek word, kero. And kero means to get a haircut. <laughs> That's it. It means to get a haircut. It's not the same as having your head shaved. I've had many haircuts in my life. Never once have I ever had my head shaved. Don't really want to have my head shaved, okay? But it's a big difference. Okay? There's a, you know, when you have your head shaved, you don't have any hair left at all on top of your head, right? So he gets a haircut. According to the rabbinical traditions, if you were in the vow of a Nazarite, you were allowed to cut your hair, but not to shave your hair. There were certain things as a Jew that you would be allowed to do. You know, perhaps the hair was bothering him or something else, you know, I don't know. Uh, but he had a hair cut in Kinkria. So here's something interesting. When he had that hair cut, 
that he would have to take that hair and save it. You know, anybody have little hair from their baby's first haircut that's in a baby book somewhere or something like that? You know, he, somewhere in this world, I have a baby book and my baby first haircut's there. You can see a little, and it's actually still red. It's amazing. That hair is the same color. But he would have had to keep this hair with him. So I want you to imagine Paul on this entire third missionary journey that we've been talking about. He's got this little pocket somewhere, and he's got hair in it. And he's carrying that hair with him everywhere he goes, like a wedding band, like something that reminds you, something that's before your eyes, an object of your faith. This is not something just Old Testament. This is something very real to us today. It's a reminder of the bread and the cup that we receive, we'll receive next week, once a month. It reminds us, it's there before our eyes, of the commitment that we've made unto God. Now this isn't a Catholic church, right? And we don't have a little baptismal fountain back there at the back, but not that long ago, uh, we were in Virginia City, and uh, our grandkids were with us, Michael and Gabriel, those two grandkids were with us, and we went inside that little Catholic church there, not little Catholic church, big, beautiful Catholic church there, and uh, as we're walking out, Gabriel says to me, what's that water for there? And I said, well, in, in this church, when you're walking out, then you take that water, I showed him how to cross himself, put a little spring on, he goes, what do you do that for? I said, it's the baptismal water, and it reminds you of your baptism. And he said, well, I haven't been baptized. I said, well, you need to be baptized, don't you, Gabriel? <laughs> and, you know, it's, a, it's those little important things in our lives that remind us of our commitment. So Paul has this hair with him wherever he's going that reminds him that I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay, just get that in your mind. Now go with me for a minute over to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to show you the difference between uh, where we can, uh, one place we can see this difference between a cut and a shave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6. I was thinking about titling this sermon Paul's Haircut. <laughs> that sounds too weird, so it's still talking about the Spirit. But in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the first part of the chapter, the second part of the chapter talks about what we've just been talking about, about receiving the Lord's Supper. But the first part of the chapter talks about a woman having her head covered uh, when she comes into the presence of God and a man not having his head covered. And sometime I will do a message just on this. It's such a powerful word in 1 Corinthians 11. And if you've been put off by 1 Corinthians 11, let me just say this to you. Don't be put off from it, uh, by it. Uh, what the message of this chapter is just powerful. It's, it's so amazing. But in verse 6, it says, For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. You know, let me just throw one thing in. Someday, someday I'll do a whole message on it. Uh, but in the context, her head is her husband. It says very clearly that the head of every woman is her husband. The head of every wife is her husband. So in the context, wives, are you covering your husbands? That's an honor to a wife to spiritually cover her husband. And he says, but if she doesn't want to cover her husband, then let her just have her hair cut off or have it shaved, and that that's a disgrace for her. Now, I know that 
you know, today in our society, we have different uh, customs and different styles, and Paul even addresses that in, in this chapter. But I do know that to this day, uh, you know, the vast majority of women are going to think that having my head shaved is not something I want to do, no matter how short you want to get your hair cut, okay? And that uh, every, every man I've ever met on planet Earth still doesn't like a shaved-headed woman. <laughs> How else to say it? It's just the way God, you know, has created us. And so, it, but here's what I want to draw out to you, instead of talking about hairstyles, is that he says it's it's a disgrace for her to have her head haircut or for her to have her head shaved, okay? So it's a disgrace to have your head shaved. And so we see that in the vow of the Nazarite, that the vow ends when the vow is completed, you only complete the vow by utterly, listen to this, utterly humbling yourself before God. Because for man or woman to have their pup head publicly shaved and their hair burned on an altar was not a moment of glory. It was a moment of disgrace in their culture. It was a complete humbling of yourself before God. So before you ever entered into the vow of the Nazarite, that would be something you would be greatly considered. Now, it's not that big of a deal for us today as Gentiles, I don't think. But can you imagine an Orthodox Jew today and how important to them it is to have the hair, to have the beard, to have all these things, and to enter into the vow of the Nazarite, or as a woman today, can you imagine if you enter into the vow of the Nazarite and you know that at the end of this I have to have my head publicly shaved and my hair it's not, it's not something you would go into lightly. What I'm saying is it's a very serious vow that Paul has made before God. Why am I making a big deal out of this? Because I want you to see how dedicated Paul is to obeying God. And he knows that everything in the world is going to work against that. And so on purpose, years ahead of time, he makes a vow, and he keeps his vow for a couple of years because he's got the whole third missionary journey ahead of him before he gets to Jerusalem. And remember how we've already read about this, how it's so important to him, I have to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. I have to be there at this time. I've made a vow before God, and I will be in Jerusalem, and I will be there at this time. I'm dedicated my life to obeying God, whatever that is that God is calling us to do. I would tell you that we live in a day today that increasingly the world around us is working to distract us from obedience to God. And I believe with all my heart that the economic situation we're in in the United States, I know it's not a recession because we changed the definition, but it's, it's pretty bad, isn't it? And it's not going, especially with an attitude of changing definitions, it's not going to get better anytime soon. It's going to get more difficult. And I know that by the Holy Spirit. And so there will be every opportunity, every opportunity for us to be distracted from obeying God. Every fear will arise around us that will draw us away from obedience to God. And it's so important that we are bound by the Spirit, that we are dedicated, seriously dedicated to following this through and awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and being prepared until the last of the last days. And so, um, we're going to go back over to Acts, but before we do, I just want to throw one thing in that's just a bonus. 
message for you. Look at chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians while we're there in verse 14. It says, does not even nature itself teach you? Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. What verse 16 means is, <clears throat> I understand your standard of long or short hair is going to be different than our Jewish standard. And so we're not going to argue with you about that. You can apply this however you want to apply this. But you need to hear the spiritual principle on this. And the little extra message I want to give you in verse 15, uh, verse 14 and 15, it says that nature itself teaches us these things. Now you might be reading that, maybe you've read that many times in your life and thought, how does nature teach us that it's dishonorable for a man to have long hair? I mean, look at the lions. The male has long hair, the female has short hair, right? So that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but actually it makes a great deal of sense. Because what Paul's really saying here is this, and I wouldn't think this would ever be an important message all my life, but I'm telling you, in the United States of America today, this is an important message, okay? What he's saying is you look at nature around you. Now, we're not talking about house pets, you know, cats and dogs. That's not always so obvious. But if you look at the wild creation around us, if you look at what God has created around us, plants and animals, and especially animals, you can always, and I'm not going to, I guess I shouldn't say always because I know it's almost always, but you can almost always just to tell just by looking whether it's a male or a female, right? You know that that deer is a male because it's got antlers. <laughs> that is a female because it doesn't got antlers or whatever like that. You can tell by body structure. You can tell with the lion. That's a male lion. That's a female lion. You can tell with cardinals. That's a male cardinal. That's a female cardinal, right? You can tell with blue jays. You can tell with all kinds of animals around us. And what Paul's saying to them is simply this. Whatever your customs are, whatever works for you, when, 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 when you look at a person, you should be able to know that whether that's a man or a woman. That that's God's way. You should dress in that way. You should wear your hair in that way. You should look like a man if you're a man. And if you're a woman, you should look like a woman. And there's nothing else except for a man and a woman. Okay, that's just a little extra message for you. I know that's old, old school, as Jerry likes to say, but old school is what works. Sorry. Um, okay, so go back over to Acts. So Paul's taken this vow. He's committed himself to these things. No, actually, look with me at Romans chapter 15. We're going to get to Acts very soon. So I've talked to you about, about the vow. Now I want to talk to you about his friends, about his friends. In Romans chapter 15. So, we just left Paul in Kinkria, right? He got a haircut because he's keeping a vow. He wrote a letter while he was in Corinth, and he sent this letter from Kinkria. We don't know this from Acts, but we put it together from other places. And the letter is called the Letter to the Romans. The entire book that we call Romans was written while Paul was taking this vow. He took his vow, and he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote that letter while he was in Corinth. He's carrying that letter with him, 
and he mails it, so to speak, in Kenkria. He sends it with a woman named Phoebe that we're going to read about now. So from Corinth, he writes this epistle to the Romans. Look with me at Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And I want to read from verse 20. Verse 20. It says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, where did that come in? Spain, well, there it is. For I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. I took a vow, and I am going to Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia is where Corinth is, Macedonia is where Philippi is. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution, that's money, for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, because the church in Jerusalem was being persecuted intensely. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, in other words, when I have delivered their money to the church in Jerusalem, I will go on by way of you. I will come to Rome and then I will go to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. So Paul's writing to the Romans, and I'm not going to do it, but if you go back to chapter 1, you'd read in chapter 1 that Paul has had a lifelong dream, well maybe not lifelong, but since he's been saved, a dream of going to Rome and preaching. And he says to them, but I have been prevented from coming to you. And he tells us why. He's prevented from going to Rome by the Holy Spirit. Not because of outward circumstances, but by the Holy Spirit on the inside of him. Because he has a mission from God. And the mission that he has, what God has told him to do, is to establish the gospel in places where it's never been preached. Paul is a frontier missionary. Paul is an apostle. Apostles come in different flavors. But his apostleship is to take the gospel to places where it's never been preached. But it's already been preached in Rome. It was preached in Rome most likely before Paul even got saved. And there's already churches established in Rome. You remember Priscilla and Aquila came from Rome, where they were, had already received Christ in Rome. And so because that doesn't work with his mission, that's not what his call is, the Holy Spirit never allows him to go to Rome. But the Holy Spirit put this deep desire in his heart to go to Rome. Why? Well, he doesn't tell them about this, but he'll talk about it in Acts. Because there's one place in Rome where the gospel has never been preached. You know where that is? It's the house of Caesar. The gospel has never been preached to Caesar. The gospel has prospered in Rome amongst the middle class and the poor, but it's never reached the Senate. It's never gotten all the way to Caesar. Pretty obvious that the gospel isn't being preached very much in Washington, D.C. today either, is it? And the gospel isn't able to get to that place. They're not listening. But Paul knows because Jesus told him when he was saved, Acts chapter 9, that I will cause you to stand before kings 
and before great men, that he will stand before Caesar and give testimony to Caesar himself and to the house of Caesar. And he doesn't know how he's going to get there. I want you to notice that Paul doesn't know how it's going to happen. He knows it has something to do with being arrested because the Holy Spirit testifies to him that you'll be bound and you'll be afflicted. He knows it has something to do with Spain, that he doesn't know what. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. Now, I need to throw in a little more information for you. In the Bible, we don't read about Paul going to Spain. It's not in the book of Acts. The book of Acts ends with him arrested under house arrest in uh, Acts, and we'll get to that much later. In Rome, uh, the, the book of Acts ends with that. He's under house arrest. But strong, very strong historical evidence from church fathers that wrote, even Clement, who wrote at the end of the first century, very close to this time, and most likely even had known uh, uh, disciples of Paul. Um, they wrote that Paul did go to Spain. And in strong Spanish tradition, Paul was in Spain. We have every reason to believe historically that Paul was in Spain. And so Paul was actually arrested twice, as most people say, but that's not really correct either. Paul was arrested once. And as often happens with people who are awaiting trial, they're released for certain circumstances or certain reasons. Perhaps there's not enough evidence. Perhaps the trial's been set off for another time. Perhaps they may bail or something else. So the book of Acts ends with Paul arrested, but he's given this vast amount of freedom in Rome to preach the gospel. He's under house arrest, actually. And people come to his house and he preaches there. But at some point he got released and he went to Spain and he went around to some other cities that there's evidence in the New Testament where he went. And then finally he was arrested again or brought back to the original trial that he had demanded before Caesar. And he was executed by Caesar in 66 or 67 AD, not too long after the ending of the book of Acts. So he made it to Spain. And he made it through Rome. But what I really want you to see is he had no idea how he was going to do this. He only knew that he was bound by the Spirit. He had no idea how difficult it was going to be, what was going to happen. But he wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't surprised by that because he had bound himself by the Holy Spirit. Like a person going into battle. You know, they don't know what they're going to meet with, they don't know what they're going to face. But they've bound themselves. You think of these knights in ancient times that would, you know, take a you know, have a vigil before they went into battle and all night spend in prayer and dedication to that battle, you know, and have their weapons consecrated and things because they knew that they were going to go into this battle and that they may die on that day. And so they're prepared to die or they're not prepared to go into battle. They probably hope that they won't die, but they're prepared to die if that's what it requires to win that battle. And so we see that Paul's vow binds him here. He's dedicated himself to this. But then there's something else that he's done. We just read about it. He's taken money from these churches in Achaia and in Macedonia. And he probably could have figured out some other way to send that money to Jerusalem, couldn't he? I'm sure he could have sent it with Timothy or somebody else, but he's taken personal responsibility over that money. So imagine Paul on his third missionary journey, you know, all these places that we just read about him going to, the whole time he's carrying hair with him that has to be burned when he gets to Jerusalem. 
literally, and we'll, that, that happens later in Acts chapter 21. He's going to have to have his head completely shaved and all the hair burned, including from the haircut. And he's got a bunch of money with him. Now, technically, he wouldn't have actually had the money with him because the Jews in that day had a great banking system and they had a system of credit. And what he would have had are letters of credit that he was carrying with him. But only he could exchange them. His name was on those letters. And he had to deliver that and release that money to the Jews when he gets to Jerusalem. So what I'm trying to say is this. I'm giving you all this evidence to tell you this. Paul puts himself in a position where he has to go to Jerusalem. Do you know that feeling? He says, I've got to get to Spain and I've got to go through Rome. Now, you can look at a map. You know that the road to Rome from Greece does not lie through Jerusalem, right? There's no reason for him to go to Jerusalem. And as we're going to see right now, everyone's telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. On a map, the road to Rome and Spain does not lie through Jerusalem. <laughs> Paul, this isn't presumption, it's faith. And there's a fine line. He knows God wants him to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see later in Acts 21 that Jesus even appears to him and says to him, just as you testified to me in Jerusalem, you must now testify in Rome. So it, it, it proves out to be true in the book of Acts that Paul has to go to Jerusalem. But nobody else agrees with that. So he purposely puts himself in a position where nobody else can do this except for Paul. He binds himself to the obedience. He binds himself to the will of God. He's bound by the Spirit. So look at chapter 16 of Romans. Chapter 16 of Romans. Chapter 16 says in verse 1, you're getting a lot of little messages mixed in here, so listen to this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Kinkria. Oh, wait a minute, that's where Paul got a haircut, right? He got a haircut in King Korea. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of, of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So here's this woman named Phoebe. Phoebe deserves a whole message or two in, by herself. This is a very interesting woman in, script, in Scripture. She's a sister in the Lord, Paul says. And where it says a servant of the church, if you've got a different version, it's going to say a deaconess, because that's what the word is in the Greek. I wish they wouldn't have put a servant of the church in this particular version, to be honest with you, because the word is a deaconess. She has an office in the church. She's a deaconess of the church in Kinkria, which is tied together with the church in Corinth. This is a very important woman in the church. But it also tells us that she was a very important businesswoman, and I'll explain that to you in just a minute. And Paul trusts her. She's actually the one who takes the letter to Rome. Could you imagine if Phoebe, you know, lost the paper somewhere? Well, I don't want to trust Phoebe. She might lose it. We wouldn't even have the, the, the letter to the Romans today. If Phoebe got, you know, beaten up by thieves on the way to Rome or something like that, you know, we wouldn't have the letter uh, to the Romans today. But Paul, just try to imagine how much Paul trusts Phoebe. That he would get, I mean, do you love uh, Romans? What an amazing book. 
know, it's, it's like the it's like the the the, the height of Paul's writing. It's it's just like you know the most amazing epistle. And he takes that epistle in the middle of this vow, and he entrusts it to Phoebe. Take this to Rome. It also tells us that Phoebe was a woman who could open doors. She was a woman who had an opportunity to meet with believers in Rome, and that when they saw her, they would accept her, and they would actually believe that this came from Paul. Because whether you know this or not, already in the first century, there were many false gospels and many false writings being written. We have some of them today, like the Gospel of Thomas and different things uh, like that. There were, there were many lying false doctrines being passed around by false apostles. So it had to be somebody that Paul really trusted, and it's Phoebe. He picks Phoebe out. And he says about Phoebe that she's a deaconess of the church. She's a sister in the Lord. And she's this very courageous businesswoman who serves the church with her finances, supports Paul, and supports all the apostles around her. Listen to what it says. It says, I ask you that you may help her. That you may help her. It says that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. So the word help, let me just give you a couple of Greek words here. The word help here is the Greek word par istemi. Istemi means to stand. Par, the prefix, means next to. So what he's saying to them is that you may assist her, that you would stand next to her. That whatever she has need of, you would completely put yourself at her disposal. So Paul writes this in the letter. When Phoebe gets there, she gives you this letter, and they read through the chapter 16. Then they say, he's saying to them, allow Phoebe to command you. Allow Phoebe to tell you what it is she needs. And you be completely at her disposal. And here's why. Because she's worthy of this. And he says... Because she herself has also been a helper of many. Now this word help is different. Okay? The first help is par histemi. This word helper comes from pro histemi. And there's a little difference in there. And the difference is this. Par means next to and pro means in front of. It's a word used for a leader. Paul says about Phoebe that she has been a leader for me and for many other apostles. It's actually, the noun is actually the, the Greek word prostatis, where we get the word prostate from, by the way, and it means standing at the head, okay? But it's in the feminine form. And this was a stereotypical word that was always used for a patroness. What's a patroness? A patroness is a very rich woman who uses the money that she has, well, maybe she's not very rich, but she's richer than other people, and she uses the money that she has, the position that she has, the uh, you know open doors that she has to uh, bless someone else and allow that to happen. Like you have a, a patroness of the arts who puts ballet on in the, in the city or opera or something like that, something that there wouldn't be enough money for otherwise, but she's really interested in that. And so she supports that, right? A patroness. So Paul's actually saying that Phoebe is the patroness of the apostles. If it wasn't for Phoebe, there wouldn't be any preaching of the gospel. I wouldn't be able to do the things that I'm doing. Phoebe supports me financially. 
Phoebe's opened doors for me. And she's done this for other apostles also. And so I want you to respect her. And when she gets there, I want you to put yourself at her disposal and allow her to use you in whatever she has need of. So that shows how much Paul trusts Phoebe. He knows she's not going to abuse them. If there's really a need, she'll simply ask them and they'll do it. Okay, so that's Phoebe. Now look at verse 3. It says, Greet Prisket. Hold on, it's one of those sermons where I got to put all this together so you can see it. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila. You remember that we've talked a lot about that. Again, Prisca's name is first. Priscilla's name is first. We talked about that. Um, we, have, we have to raise our attitude toward God's sisters and women in the church. You know that? I mean, I'm just being honest with you. It's all in the Bible. Where we ever got this idea that you have to be male to be a warden of God is just absolute nonsense. So, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So we've got Priscilla and Aquila, talking a lot about them. So let me ask you this question. Does Phoebe love Paul? Obviously. Does she believe in his ministry? Obviously she does, right? Do Priscilla and Aquila? Yes, I mean, these people really love Paul. And they really believe in his ministry. They have Paul's best interests at heart. Would you agree to that? They are not against Paul. They are for Paul. This is his family. He's not married. He doesn't have kids. As far as we know, he didn't have any kids. He's not married, that's for sure. And uh, this is his family. This is his church family. Does Paul trust them? Oh, yeah, he really trusts these people. He says, they, they lay down their lives for me. They put their necks on the line for me. I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for Priscilla and Aquila. And he's saying that about Phoebe also. And I'm not going to take the time to do it, but you can do it at home. If you'll read from verse 5 through 15, and then you can keep going beyond that even. There's a whole list of people in Rome that Paul loves with all his heart. He knows them by name. There's one guy he says, that's the first guy that got saved in Asia. I remember the first guy that got converted to, to Jesus Christ when I started preaching in Asia. And now he's in Rome, and I want you to tell him a big howdy from me. I remember him. I remember all of their names. I remember all these people, and I can't wait till I get there to Rome to be with you. So these are friends of Paul. They know him. They love him. They've all made significant sacrifices to keep Paul free, unarrested. Remember when he was in Damascus? They let him down through the, by, from, by the wall in a basket to get him off the hook, to get him out. There were other places where they're like, Paul, you've got to get out of here. Get on down the road. I mean, they've been working their whole life to keep Paul's ministry on the go. And now Paul is saying that there's no place left for me to preach here. Remember he said that? We just read. There's no place left for me to preach here in Achaia and in Macedonia and in Asia. I've got to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to go to Spain, and I'm going to go through Rome. So what does he mean when there's no place to leave for me to preach here? Because the Holy Spirit has closed the doors. He does not mean that people don't want me here. He could have stayed in Ephesus for the rest of his life. Those, those guys love him in Ephesus. And he could have retired there, everything would have been wonderful, whatever. He probably never would have got persecuted again. He could have hung out in Corinth. I mean, they were weird there, and they had their problems, but they liked Paul. They loved him. He could have said, I'm just going to go straight to Rome, and when I get there, 
you know, could you build me a little parsonage? And they'd be like, oh yeah, Paul's going to have a parsonage in Rome. This is going to be awesome. And he's just going to stay there, right? When he says I don't have any place to preach here, he's, he doesn't mean that people don't want me. He means there's something compelling me beyond the opinions of men. It's the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you this morning, we have to have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. I don't know how we'll survive in these days if we cannot listen to the Holy Spirit above the opinions of men, even especially above the people that are the most well-meaning that truly love us. But sometimes, and it's not every day, but sometimes the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and nobody else has heard that. And they're not going to say to you, oh yeah, we know that that's God. But you've got to know what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in your life. And you've got to follow that courageously. So they all knew by the Spirit of God, all these people we're talking about, Phoebe, Priscilla, Quill, all of them, they know that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be put in jail. And Paul says, every city I go to, they tell me that. Someone comes up to me, Paul, I've got a word from the Lord. It came to me last night. It's a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, you know, this, this, this revelation from God. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be put in jail. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be bound. Your ministry is going to end. And then Paul's like, yeah, I know. They tell me that in every city. The Holy Spirit tells me that in every city. He doesn't say these people are not hearing God. They are hearing God. But what they're not hearing is the full picture. Paul has the whole picture. They have a part of it. So Paul's very grateful for the testimony of the Spirit, for the prophetic words he's getting, for the words of knowledge, the words of wisdom, the gifts of the Spirit in the operation, but overriding everything, he knows, I have a word from Jesus. And this is what Jesus told me, and I'm going to do it. And finally, he takes a vow, he gets his money, and he says, there's no way I'm turning back. Now I've forced myself to have to obey God. I have to go to Jerusalem. So they're all trying to convince him not to go, but he keeps going. To now go to Acts chapter 21. I promise you, I'm almost done. <laughs> Acts chapter 21. Now you can understand. We're just going to read a few verses here at the beginning. Look at Acts 21. It says, when he had part parted from them, okay, so this is at the end of his third missionary journey. He's just left the elders uh, from Ephesus. We looked at this in the last two messages. And it says, when he had parted from them, and had set sail, we were in a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, you can look on a map and see this stuff, one of the Bible maps. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail, and when we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, I've actually heard ministers of the gospel preaching from this passage of Scripture, people that I highly respect, say that Paul sinned because he didn't listen to these people. But I want to tell you that that's not the proper reading or the proper understanding of this. Nobody sinned here. They didn't sin by telling him this, and he didn't sin by not listening to it. 
He knows that this is what the Spirit of God's telling him. He's going to be arrested when he goes there. That he also knows that Jesus has bound him to go there anyway. They don't understand that because they don't have the full picture. So they're telling him, don't go there. He gets to Tyre. And one thing I want to point out is Tyre is a really small church. There's not very many Christians there. And that Paul doesn't even know these people. Because it says, after looking up the disciples, they didn't even know where the church was. You know, whatever they did back then, their version of Google, they found a church and they went there. And when they show up, those people are like, oh, I got a word from you, Brother Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. He's like, there it is again. Everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit keeps telling me the same thing over and over again. But I'm going, I took a vow. I've got hair in my pocket. I've got letters of credit. And I'm going to Jerusalem. In verse 5 it says, When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey. And while they all, with wives and children, so the whole little church, turns out, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, they all prayed together. We said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. Notice where it says, we, 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 it's because Luke is with him. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. Now, that's a huge church. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, if you remember him, he was one of the seven deacons in chapter uh, 7 of Acts, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and says, this is what the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as all the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So here's what you need to see. When Paul gets to Caesarea, he's staying at the home of Philip the Evangelist. He's not called Philip the Deacon anymore. This guy is a famous evangelist. The whole chapter in the book of Acts written about him. The guy that meets the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, that guy. He's a famous evangelist. And he's got four virgin daughters, which probably means they were teenagers. Okay? Doesn't mean they were nuns and they were 40 years old and they never got married. It means these were teenage daughters, but they were prophetesses. They were recognized by the church. Challenge alert to all teenagers, you don't have to wait until you're 40 years old to be used by God. They were recognized by the church as prophetesses. We don't know what they were prophesying to Paul about, but I have a pretty good guess. Because Agabus shows up, and Agabus tells him the same thing again. Whoever owns this belt takes Paul's belt. Here, Paul, can I borrow your belt? Paul's like, yeah, okay, here's my belt. And Agabus ties up his hands and says, whoever owns this belt will be bound when he gets to Jerusalem and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. I think when Paul heard that, see, Agabus is a really important prophet. He's the one that prophesied earlier in the book of Acts about a famine coming, if you remember it. So he's a famous prophet from Jerusalem. Why did Agabus show up in Caesarea? Well, I, my theory is because Paul's not listening to anybody. I don't think it was a super spiritual thing. Like Agabus was led by the Holy Spirit to go to Caesarea. That's not how things usually work, and if it is, they would say it in the Bible. I think it worked like this. Paul's not listening to anybody. All of his friends, including Luke, 
Because he says, we, Paul's personal ministry team, all the elders on Paul's ministry board are begging him, do not go to Jerusalem. You are not hearing from God, Paul. This is not the will of God. The Spirit is testifying through everybody that you will be put in jail and you will be handed over to the Gentiles when you get to Jerusalem. And Paul's like, no, I'm ready to go. I'm going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I took a vow. Well, forget your vow. You know, God will forgive you for that. It's okay. You made a mistake. You took a vow. I know they thought that because I could still hear preachers today preaching that Paul missed it. But he didn't miss it. It's proven out at the end of the book of Acts that he didn't miss it. So it's, it's being tested. The word that he has from God is being severely tested, but he stays with what God has told him. So I think they called Jerusalem and said, send Agus. Paul's got to listen to him. He's a real prophet, not a teenage prophet. And the real prophet comes and tells him the same thing again. And I think when he heard Agus, this is my, my personal theory, that Paul heard him say, and he will be handed over to the Gentiles. And Paul went, yes, that's it. That's how I'm going to get to Rome. Because Agabus didn't say, I'm going to be killed by the Jews. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And when they hand me over, I think the plan was already formulated by the Holy Spirit. I'm, if you know the story, it comes later. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And according to law number 2,922 of Rome, there's nothing they can do about it. If I appeal to Caesar, they've got to send me to Caesar. And that's how I'll get into the house of Caesar. See, Paul, he's crafty. Paul, he's using his mind to find ways that he can obey God. He's not trying to find ways to get out of obedience to God. He's trying to find ways that I can stay in obedience to God. And so they all beg him, please don't go. Don't do this. And Paul says in verse uh, 13, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, well, the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So that's where I'm going to start reading. I want you to notice that Paul, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 28, it says that I have the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. 2 Corinthians 11, 28. It's his thorn in the flesh. He says, on top of all this stuff, I have a daily concern for all the churches. Paul knows everybody by name. He knows what they're going on, going through. He carries the burden of loving the church. Paul loves these people. He doesn't say to them, these are false prophecies. How dare you speak to me like that? I'm the great apostle Paul. He says, stop breaking my heart. I know that I'm going to be arrested. I know I'll be turned over to the Romans. But I am going to do this. So you get with me. Or not, but I'm going to do it no matter what, because it's what God's told me to do. And it says, finally, they fell silent, and they said, well, then the will of God be done. And this is what I want to leave you with today. If we are truly bound by the Holy Spirit, just give me four minutes, listen to this, 
if we're truly bound by the Holy Spirit, if we are truly obeying God, then that means that we will not be afraid to have the word that God has spoken to us to be tested by people that we trust and that we love in ministry. Paul's not afraid to hear these prophetic words. He's not afraid of Agabus. He's not afraid to listen to these things. That word is tested in every city he goes to. Okay? But it also means that having been tested, that word will still be in our heart. And we'll know that this is the will of God. That that word is confirmed to me. And we will not be able to be persuaded to change our minds. If you can be persuaded to change your mind, then I'm not sure that's really what God spoke to you. But when you know that God has spoken to your life, nobody can persuade you. Nobody can knock you off of that path that you're walking on. They cannot change your mind. But if it's really from God, pay careful attention to this. Your faith will persuade others who don't agree. There's this, this stuff of being some kind of rebel who's going against the everybody, you know, like, I don't care what my husband says, I'm going to do the will of God, you know, and I don't care what my pastor says, I'm going to do the will of God. Are you really doing the will of God then? Because Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't say to them, I'm the great apostle, I don't care what you say, I'm doing this. He listens to them every step of the way. And at the end of the story, his faith persuades them. They change their minds. They say, well, I guess it's the will of God. If Paul's so convinced, let's just do what Paul says. And if we die, we die. Like Esther said to Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. But you've convinced me. This is the will of God. So his faith persuades them. They don't persuade him. And nobody in the story is missing God. They're all hearing God. It's not a question of somebody's in sin here. But sometimes it's not so easy to see what God wants to do in another person's life. But we need to see what God wants to do in our lives. And be so wholly convinced of that, that it persuades others over time. And over time, they finally all agree. And they're so in agreement that when they go, the only reason I read verses 15 and 16 today, so you can see this. When they leave Caesarea, they go to some other guy named Manasseh. And he gets convinced too. Wherever they go, everybody gets on board. And when we see this in the next, as we go into the rest of this chapter, you'll see that all the disciples in Jerusalem are on board also. From here on out, everybody's on board with what Paul's doing. Everybody's in agreement. Because faith is contagious. Courage is contagious. Do you know that? Everyone knows that feeling. <laughs> Being afraid and all of a sudden here comes somebody with courage and you're like, Oh yeah, well, he can do it, I can do it. No, it's contagious. And we need that kind of contagious courage and faith today that we have heard the voice of the Holy Spirit and we can follow the voice of the Holy Spirit to the end. Well, thank you for being patient with lots of little historic details and things about haircuts. Uh, I really know sometimes we have to have all this background stuff to tie it all together and to really feel what Paul is going through because these things are written as examples for us that we can put ourselves in Paul's shoes and say, if he could do it, then I can do it also. Let's stand here. Father, just thank you for your word this morning.
I pray that these things just be applied in our lives, Lord. And we really listen to these things. Father, I pray that we would hold before our eyes those, those envelopes with, with our hair in them, whatever they may be, those objects of our faith, those vows that we've made before you, Lord. Next week, as we receive communion, that we would not receive that just in passing or think, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to church today because it's a family Sunday. We think, no, what an opportunity to do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ, of the vow that I've made before him. That our commitment to you would be so serious that we would go into the very jaws of death and the hell itself to follow you, Lord. We would take this gospel and fulfill our mission all the way to the end with joy in our hearts, Lord, with that kind of courage that we see in Paul. Lord, I pray that you would give us creative ideas, or as the King James says, witty inventions, to figure out ways that we can be obedient to you instead of always wasting our energy trying to figure out ways to get out of it. Let's figure out a way to get into it. Be a part of what we're doing in these last days. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.